You are listening to National Security Law Today. On October 7th, 2023, militants from the foreign terrorist organization Hamas rushed into Israel, murdering civilians of all ages and abilities, committing violent sexual assaults and more. The purpose of tonight's podcast is to educate in the moment when hurt, when seized with dismay and disgust, and these things are infecting our thoughts. So tonight we're going to talk about who is Hamas? Where did they come from? Who is funding them? And do they really speak for all Palestinian people? Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Today, we're talking to a decades-long expert on Hamas, Dr. Matt Levitt. Matt is the Fromer Wexo Fellow at the Washington Institute and director of its Jeanette and Eli Reinhardt Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. Matt served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Intelligence and Analysis at the U.S. Department of Treasury and as a Deputy Chief of the Office of Intelligence and Analysis at Treasury. He also served as a State Department counterterrorism advisor to the Special Envoy for Middle East Regional Security, and he is the author of many articles and books on Hamas, including a recent article in Foreign Affairs, The War Hamas Always Wanted, How the Group's Attack Could Disrupt the Emerging Order in the Middle East. Matt, thank you so much for coming in tonight. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I wish it was under better circumstances. I do too, Matt. Let's just perform a public service here and educate. How did Hamas start? What are its origins? Hamas is a Palestinian militant organization that was founded in late 1987. It was the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim Brotherhood was born in Egypt, but has branches in countries throughout the region and around the world. The majority of these are not terrorist organizations, even if they hold some fundamentalist ideals. Hamas initiated a new set of ideas in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and it was committed to destroying Israel and establishing in its place an Islamic state, specifically an Islamic state, not a secular one, in all of what it, it describes as historic Palestine meaning the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and all of what is now modern-day Israel. So Hamas really has two sets of enemies. One, of course, is Israel, whose existence it doesn't believe in and wants to destroy. And the other is its Palestinian political rivals, in particular Fatah, the main Palestinian organization behind the Palestinian Authority, and any other Palestinian entity that either doesn't believe in uh, use of violence to secure its goals, including violence targeting civilians, or believes in a two-state solution. And so I think it's really important to kind of start here as we're trying to understand what just happened. And you'll see protests around the world, pro-Palestinian protests uh, that are using imagery like hand gliders or a bulldozer bulldozing a fence that are clearly related to the way Hamas attacked a week ago Saturday on the 7th. Those images are not pro-Palestinian state. Those images are not pro-peace. They're not pro a two-state solution. They are supporting the barbaric attack that Hamas did and supporting an organization that itself is committed, committed to opposing a two-state solution. Now, I think it's also important to understand 
that Hamas does not speak for the majority of Palestinians. In fact, it doesn't even speak for the majority of people in the Gaza Strip. Hamas took over the Gaza Strip by force of arms in 2007. The year prior, it was the party that won the most votes. It didn't win overwhelmingly in Palestinian elections in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. It entered into a national unity government with Fatah, which was very short-lived because Hamas was trying to instill its ideals of militancy, violence, and opposing a two-state solution. And ultimately, Hamas turned its guns on fellow Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. The Israelis had already left the Gaza Strip and took over the Gaza Strip by force of arms in 2007. And at that point, many people thought that Hamas would moderate that Hamas would at a minimum be co-opted by the responsibilities of governance, that the day-to-day responsibilities of collecting garbage and paying teachers' salaries would just take up all its time and energy. In a more macro sense, it wouldn't want to do things against Israel that would put its governance project at risk in the Gaza Strip. That position, that hope maybe described it, was very, very violently put to bed on October 7th, where we see that Hamas over time invested money that was supposed to go to needy Palestinians in the Gaza Strip in building tunnels, in building a domestic weapons production capability to produce rockets, for example, invested in building up a force of well over a thousand individuals who stormed into Gaza to kill Israelis. And there's more Hamas militants that are waiting for what they hope will be an Israeli invasion. Not only was this carried out, obviously, by the Hamas military wing, But the Hamas politicians were all over it as well, even as the attack was still playing out. But once it was already clear what was happening, Ismail Haniya, one of the Hamas leaders speaking from the comfort of Doha, Qatar, issued a blood-curling statement, which ended with, this can only end one of two ways in victory or martyrdom. And it really also put to bed, therefore, this myth, and it really only ever was a myth, that there are distinct wings within Hamas. That's a politically convenient construct for countries that don't want to deal with Hamas writ large. But the fact is, Hamas itself has always said, you know, anybody who says there's a distinction between our wings doesn't understand us. We are one body, is how they would put it. You referenced something, but I want to put some specificity to it. We've heard a lot about Hamas's original charter. Can you explain what it said, when and how it changed, and why it changed, and whether or not Hamas has stayed true to the modification to the charter? In 1988, months after it was founded, Hamas issued its charter. What most people don't know is that it was actually published in the United States, in Chicago, by a Hamas front organization that has since shut down in Chicago, published there in Arabic and later in English. And Hamas and its charter made it very, very clear that it subscribes to the dictates of the Islamic Republic of Iran, that it sees the United States as the source of all evil, and that it believes in destroying what it calls the Zionist entity. It called on people to engage in jihad, its term. It's important to note there are two definitions of the term jihad. One means fighting and one means personal improvement. And when asked, how do you know, Matt, which is being referenced, I I, I use the methodologically sound uh, common sense test. If someone is talking about blood and, and weapons, they're they're probably talking about violence. If someone's talking about being a better person and praying five times a day and going on the pilgrimage, that's probably self-improvement. In this case, the context was very clear. Years later, just a few years ago, Hamas issued an update, an addendum, which sounded much more moderate and said that Hamas might even be able to agree to a long-term truce, a long-term hudna 
with Israel. It would never accept Israel, but it could be convinced to live side by side with Israel along the 1967 borders. The problem was that these were words and the actions of Hamas spoke otherwise. So, for example, when Hamas had its internal elections, at the same time, it's issuing this more moderate addendum to its charter. It is putting forward candidates who are all current or former military wing people who are still calling for the destruction of Israel. As it's doing this, it is periodically every 18 to 24 months or so carrying out a rocket war targeting Israel. It is holding on to Israeli civilian hostages long before this current conflict, including one person with developmental disabilities. It was doing lots of different things that just indeed completely undermined what it was saying in word. Now, I think it is important to recognize that there have been over the years debates within Hamas, and there have been some who have been heartily shouted down, but there have been some who have said, no, maybe we should just establish an Islamic state in what is now Palestine, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and ignore the Israelis and take what we can. And uh, we don't have to ever really acknowledge those people have been shouted down. And over time, the more militant people have had more sway and more say over what happens on a day-to-day -day basis. And again, there's just no way to look at what happened on October 7th and not walk away from a very clear understanding that those who said that Hamas's social welfare, political and religious institutions were a moderating force, those who said that Hamas would be co-opted by power, governance and responsibility just got it wrong. Let's talk about what landed Hamas on the designation list in the first place, one. And two, what has their method been in terms of inflicting terror? What, what are the things that they've previously done? And how does the history of what they've done differ from what we saw on October 7th? Hamas was one of the inaugural listings on the first international designation list that predates our terrorism designation lists all the way back under President Clinton, as the Oslo Accords were being negotiated, and there was an effort to secure Israeli-Arab peace, both with the Palestinians, with Jordan, etc., President Clinton issued an executive order that targeted groups that were trying to undermine the peace process. This included Jewish extremist groups and Islamist extremist groups, and Hamas was one of those. Later, the U.S. government created its various terrorism lists, and Hamas was on those to include the State Department's foreign terrorist organization list and the State Department's specially designated global terrorist entity list. And it has been renewed on those lists every year since. Shortly after Hamas was founded in 1987, it started carrying out attacks, first relatively small scale attacks compared to what we saw later, shootings, stabbings, kidnappings. And in time, it got worse. And so by the early to mid-1990s, just a few years after its founding, Hamas picked up the tactic of suicide bombings and became especially well-known for carrying out suicide bombings targeting civilian targets like public buses and cafes in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and other places around the country, bus stops, etc., uh, kidnappings continued, shootings continued, roadside shootings, all these different things. But for many years, it was really best known for these suicide bombings. And I think that things really changed when 
they took over the Gaza Strip by force of arms, and they largely lost and were cracked down on in the West Bank, both by Israeli and Palestinian authority forces, denying them the capability to be able to carry out those types of suicide bombings as effectively in the West Bank or from the West Bank penetrating into Israel to do it. I know it's hard to think this way, given what just happened, but it was for a very long time very difficult to get from the Gaza Strip into Israel, which is one of the reasons this attack was so shocking. And so it really undermined their ability to carry out those suicide bombings. So to continue with their tactics, they are a learning organization. And so they developed rocket capabilities, first rockets delivered by Iran, smuggled through tunnels from Egypt. As those tunnels were shut down, or typically portions of them would be shut down, and Hamas would then dig a, a new entrance way to the tunnel. So instead of being a long, straight tunnel, now you had a tunnel that was long and straight and then had a 40-degree turn and then was long and straight again. The problem then was some of those Iranian rockets couldn't make the turn in the tunnel. So the Iranians re-engineered some Katyushas and Grad rockets so that they could unscrew into three pieces and be taken through the tunnels. As the Israelis and Egyptians shut down these tunnels, flooding them with sewage and other ways of shutting them down, Hamas came up with other tactics and and Iran and others helped them develop a domestic rocket, mortar, and missile production capability. Typically, those rockets can't go very far. If they go far, they can't carry particularly heavy explosive payloads. But over time, they've gotten better. And Hamas, in the past few days, fired a rocket all the way to northern Israel, So they can hit Tel Aviv, they can hit Jerusalem, they can go farther. But most of their rockets are not very long distance, and they are, by definition, terrorist weapons because they can't really be aimed at a particular location other than, say, a city. And so they are indiscriminate, which is one of the things that we look for when we're trying to understand terrorism and political violence versus militia military violence. They did other things. In an effort to try and break through the Gaza Strip, they started digging not tunnels into Egypt to the west for the purpose of smuggling goods, but tunnels to the east into Israel proper for the purpose of carrying out attacks. I've been in at least five or six of those tunnels on the Israeli side after the tunnels were sealed. And at first they were very simple and very low with wood structures as support beams and they would collapse. In time, Hamas learned to dig taller tunnels, and they prefabricated cement block walls and a cement block dome that they would put in. They would put train tracks in there so that as you dig the tunnel, you can fill up a cart with the dirt. They'd put in electrical cables. They'd put in telephone wires so that people could call up, hey, it's time for your shift. Come on down. I think they also were trying to evade Israeli cellular eavesdropping capabilities. And the electricity was in part so that they could attach metal cables to these train carts full of dirt, hit the button, and then it would be electrically pulled out instead of people having to push it out. The only purpose of those tunnels was to do the types of operations that they just carried out without the tunnels. The Israelis found those. They got rid of those. Hamas did carry out some operations with them. They kidnapped the soldier Gilad Shalit that way one time. But in time, the Israelis addressed those. They even built a a fence that goes below ground and has very sophisticated electronic devices to be able to detect when tunnels are being dug. And that put Hamas in a little bit of a bind. They felt, I'm sure, trapped in there. I'm not talking about the average Palestinian who felt trapped in other ways, 
trapped under Hamas rule, but they felt trapped in there because they were unable to engage in what they call resistance and I would call terrorism. And so it seems that at a certain point, and I think it was probably after the 2021 rocket war with Israel, where they said, we have to break this paradigm. And they started thinking about what a larger attack would look like. Now, they clearly got help from Hezbollah in Lebanon, Lebanese Hezbollah from this. And we know that because this attack that they carried out is textbook, exactly out of the Hezbollah playbook. The IDF, Israel Defense Forces, the Israeli military, their northern command has been training and training and training to stop exactly this attack in the north from Hezbollah, where Hezbollah was plotting to storm across the border while rockets fly overhead, capture as many civilian towns and villages as possible, kill a bunch of people, kidnap a bunch of people into Lebanon, drag Israeli military into a war there where they will overreact in the eyes of public opinion and bring sympathy to the cause. Part of the surprise was that it happened, but that it happened on the southern border. But it's clear, therefore, that there was some Hezbollah strategic planning support to this, as we can see from the way they, they executed the plan. The fact is, for Israelis, there's only yesterday and today. There's before 10-7 and after 10-7. The domestic, political, and social fissure that was going on within Israeli society is paused in a big way. It was pro-two-state solution, secular leftist communities that were targeted in the South. There is unanimity within Israel that an entity that carries out this kind of barbaric attack, beheading some of their victims, kidnapping three-year-olds, I mean, sexual assault, mowing people down in the street simply cannot be tolerated. And so the Israeli perspective now is that they need to do whatever it is they need to do to end the Hamas governance and military project in the Gaza Strip. All right. Let's talk for a second about its funding, because no terror group can survive without an inflow of cash. How is Hamas getting funded now over the decades? And when did it shift? And by the way, let's add for just a context, Hezbollah is also a designated foreign terrorist group, and it is typically a Shia group that is operates out of Lebanon. That's but, right. But we should put to bed the myth that Sunni and Shia hate each other, which they do sometimes, and therefore they won't work together. Iran is Shia also, and they are very close to Hamas and finance Hamas to get to your question. Some of that is sent directly. Some of it is sent via Hezbollah. They are part of what they call, these are their term, not mine, an axis of resistance. There are some things that have changed drastically in Hamas's financing, but the first thing to understand is that the one constant has been Iranian support. That's cash, that's in-kind, that's weapons, that's training, that's intelligence. The U.S. government estimates that that support nowadays is somewhere between 70 and $100 million a year. And that probably does not include what I, as a former government official, would describe as supplemental budget. In times of crisis like this, so I would anticipate that that Iran is preparing to give Hamas more money right now. But previous to controlling territory, Hamas's second most important source of income was abuse of charity. And they had many charities around the world who publicly said that they were raising funds for needy Palestinians, which I want to say out loud is a noble goal. Palestinians in need should get support. But that's not what they were doing, or at least not all that they were doing. They were prioritizing that support to people who support them, building grassroots support networks by providing social welfare and other support. Never all the support someone needed, but enough to get over the hump after people got 
support from international aid organizations, and also funding their, their militancy, of course. Perhaps the most egregious case was here in the United States. For a period of time, the largest Muslim charity in this country was a fraud. It was called the Holy Land Foundation for Relief and Development, based out of Richardson, Texas, outside of Dallas. It was ultimately convicted on all counts, and several of its senior offices convicted on all counts, some of them serving sentences as long as 60 years. And they were a Hamas front organization created by Hamas to fund Hamas. Others are organizations that are not created by Hamas, but are abused by the organization. And there's a kind of a range of, of, of ways to abuse charity. Over time, that became less of an issue as the U.S. and other Western allies cracked down on that. In most European countries, they shut down the Al-Aqsa International Foundation. Al-Aqsa International Foundation and the Holy Land Foundation were also designated by the U.S. government. And there are others around the world as well. But then Hamas took over the Gaza Strip by force of arms. And what we have seen with groups that control territory is that they are able to collect significant amounts of money by virtue of controlling that territory. So for example, in the case of Islamic State, most of us focused on Islamic State raising funds through oil and gas and natural resources, and that's true. But a very, very, very close second was the amount of money they were able to tax and extort from the local population in the parts of Syria and Iraq that they controlled. The same goes for Hamas. Actually, Hamas's number one most significant source of income is its control of territory. And that has to be, I believe, in the range of 300 to 400 million dollars a year until now. The third source of funding are Hamas investments. And over the years, the US Treasury Department has designated several individuals. I can think of one in Jordan, another in Turkey. And there are people in other countries around the Middle East and North Africa who run investment portfolios on behalf of Hamas. And finally, you do still have abusive charity. And we've seen some of that in just the past few days. Again, some of those are Hamas front organizations and other are radical Islamist uh, organizations. There's one in Kuwait that just raised about $8 million since the crisis this week started for Hamas and others like it. And then individuals. There was a case in the Netherlands of a, a father and his daughter who reportedly raised 5 million euro for Hamas, again, telling people they were raising money for needy Palestinians. All right, let's talk a little bit about Hamas leadership, because I think some of our listeners might be surprised to understand that many of the leaders in Hamas aren't even in Gaza. They're not even in the territories. But generally, how are they structured and where is their leadership located as far as we know? Hamas has several leadership structures, and they always have. There's the internal and external Hamas leadership, internal to the West Bank and Gaza Strip and external to it. So Hamas for many years had a headquarters in Damascus in Syria, and it stayed that way until Hamas broke with the Assad regime over the Assad regime's massacring of mostly Sunni Muslims. Again, Hamas is a Sunni Muslim organization. And it moved at that point, most of those people to Lebanon and to Turkey. It already at that point had other external leaders living in extreme comfort in Doha, Qatar. And several of Hamas's most important leaders remain in Doha, Qatar today and have issued a variety of statements, again, some of them quite blood curling or calling for protests and violence in the past few days from Qatar. Think Musa Boumarzouk, Khaled Mishal, Ismail Haniya, for example. There are others. Since Hamas took over the Gaza Strip, 
2007, you've had Hamas leadership of Gaza in the Gaza Strip. And then you've also had Hamas leaders of the movement because it doesn't control territory in the West Bank. And then finally, there are lots of Hamas operatives and even some leaders in Israeli prisons. And they have proven very successful at organizing together and smuggling in cell phones. And for example, when Hamas has kidnapped people, giving input to leaders in Damascus or in the Gaza Strip as to who they should prioritize to demand the, to the release of, of Hamas or other prisoners, etc. And then the last thing to understand is that while there is no such thing as distinct wings within Hamas, Hamas is one entity and Hamas leaders will say that over and over and over, there are people who are responsible for political issues and there are people who are responsible for the military issues. The political people clearly knew that this operation that happened a week ago Saturday was in the making in general terms. Several of them have claimed that they woke up Saturday morning surprised. And you know what? I believe that for operational security purposes, to make sure that the United States, that Israel, that others didn't know about this. I'm sure Hamas kept this close hold. And by this, I mean exactly what and exactly when would happen. But when you have political leaders like Ismail Haniya, based in Doha, Qatar, issuing these blood-curling statements and saying this can only end in victory or martyrdom and a whole lot of worse stuff, it just belies the concept that there are these innocent, purely political people who are not involved in any militancy and that therefore are different. And then therefore it's frustrating when there are some countries that still only designate the military wing of Hamas, the Qassam Brigades. That is a long, for a long time, that was the case in the European Union, but the European Union years ago already broadened their designation to all of Hamas. And following this massacre, I am hopeful that more countries will come to terms with the fact that a group that carries out textbook terrorism of the type that Hamas did can only and must be designated as a terrorist group writ large. Let's talk about two other issues right now, which is you've already discussed the fact that Hamas and Hezbollah are clearly working together, but this has actually happened before, correct? Oh, Hamas and Hezbollah work very, very closely together, and they have for many, many years. They don't typically do operations together. They don't need to do operations together, but they have helped each other many times. Years ago, in 1992, just years after Hamas was created, when Hamas and another Palestinian terrorist group, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, went on a terrorist attack spree, Israeli authorities rounded up a bunch of Hamas and Islamic Jihad operatives and dumped them on a mountain top in Lebanon, Marjal Zahor, just over the border, and deported them. Hezbollah immediately came down there, introduced themselves and helped them and started teaching them more techniques. That is when the Hamas-Hezbollah relationship really started in earnest. And some point out that while there was one attempted suicide bombing before that deportation, it failed. And it is widely believed, and I think it is the case, that Hamas learned the fine art of suicide bombing when they were deported to Lebanon and they learned it from Hezbollah. If you fast forward to today, Hamas has also built a militant capability in southern Lebanon. Last June, when rockets were fired from Lebanon into Israel, those were not fired by Hezbollah. They were fired by Hamas. But this is in southern Lebanon, which is Hezbollah territory. You can't burp down there without Hezbollah's permission. This is Hezbollah at least giving a green light, if not giving the actual weaponry 
to Hamas to do this. Just this week, there were Hamas operatives that charged the fence north along the blue line, trying to come into Israel from Lebanon. Again, Hezbollah uh, at least giving a, a green light for that. And as I mentioned earlier, Iran, its Quds Force, Hezbollah, and Hamas, by their own admission for the past two to three years, have been running what they describe as a joint operations center to try and coordinate their activity. And this idea of doing something on one front and then at least threatening to open up on another front, as Hezbollah has been doing this week, is something they've been working on for some time. Were there warning signs that this was going to happen? That's a tough one because it's very easy to look back with 2020 vision and Monday morning quarterback. I think that it's clear that Hamas had an intelligence coup here, not only in terms of knowing exactly what to do and where to hit. Some of the material that the Israelis are finding on the bodies of killed Hamas operatives and some of the information they're getting from the GoPro cameras they wore on their heads is very, very disturbing, not only in terms of the attacks they carried out, but the intelligence sheets that they were carrying with them. How far is it to this community? Here's a map of this community. Where's the security booth in this community? Where's the dentistry? Where do people live? It was extremely granular. And how they collected this is something the Israelis are going to have to answer for themselves in due time. I think there was real operational security in terms of of the operation itself. And therefore, I've heard already that the Israelis had chatter, the Egyptians had chatter, America had chatter. Chatter doesn't get you anywhere. B, Hamas for years now has been talking tough, doing the same playbook over and over with some limited variation. And I think the Israelis believed that they had Hamas deterred and had figured out a calculation by which as long as Gazans could come into Israel to work, and just a week before this atrocity, Israel increased the number of Gazans who were going to be allowed to come into work in Israel proper. If they allowed electricity and gas and uh, clean water and, and goods to come in, that Hamas would remain somewhat calm. Okay, so Hamas has been holding two to three Israeli civilians hostage for years now. Okay, so 18 to 24 months will be rocket wars, but generally some level of stability. And therefore, when you hear Hamas say nasty things, you sometimes discount it. I'm guilty here too. Last August, Salah Halaruri, the deputy chief of Hamas, who used to be in Damascus and then in Turkey and is now believed to be mostly in Lebanon, gave an interview to a television outlet affiliated with Lebanese Hezbollah, the terrorist group in, in, in Lebanon. This was as terrorist attacks in the West Bank, shooting attacks in particular, were picking up pace. The Israelis were losing patience with it. And a couple of Israeli officials had pretty clearly said, you know, intimated pretty clearly that they were considering resuming targeted assassinations of Hamas leaders to put an end to these shooting attacks. And Salah al would clearly be at the top of that list because he's long been a very militant person, even though he has a political position right now. And he has always been a West Bank guy pushing militancy in the West Bank. Those of us who have followed Hezbollah for the years have known and followed Salah al since the 1990s. Salah al gets on this Hezbollah-affiliated television and says, I'm not afraid of that. And the Israelis should know we're actually preparing right now for regional war. And there was a little bit more detail there, but not a lot. I saw that. Many others saw that. I was guilty along with everybody else in saying, tough talk. And so I think that it shouldn't surprise that now, not only government officials and intelligence officials and diplomats, but analysts like myself are having to sit back and say, okay, 
all the paradigms are off the table. All the previous assumptions are off the table. We didn't see this coming. What else might we not have seen coming? And I think the, the most immediate venue where that's going to be immediately applicable is on the conversation about whether or not and to what extent Hezbollah really opens up a second front in Lebanon or even a third front from Syria in a serious way. There's been border skirmishes. There's been an anti-tank guided missile that was fired from Lebanon into Israel. There have been rockets. There have been a variety of different things, people approaching the fence and trying to come in. So far, it's been fairly small scale. Is that as far as they're going to go? Are they going to go in more? Under what circumstances might they go in more? I've got lots of opinions there, and maybe that's for another podcast. The point for now is that what Hamas has done is forcing everybody to reassess what they thought a week and a half ago were their givens. But there was a massive announcement, if you will, between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And that was along the lines of the fact that they were going to normalize relations. What role did that announcement play in this attack? And what other announcements might have contributed to this that we're overlooking because of sort of the magnitude of the Saudi-Israeli normalization talk? I do think that the precipitant event was the prospect of Israel-Saudi normalization. And that is the issue, not, not, not others. Now, let's be clear. This plot was clearly being planned already. But militant organizations, and for that matter, you know, militaries of countries engage in uh, contingency planning all the time. So Hamas, I believe we're going to look back and we're going to probably conclude that it was after the 2021 rocket war that Hamas decided this isn't working for us. At the end of this war, we didn't get any closer to destroying Israel. We didn't further our agenda. The Israelis kicked the stuffing out of us. We got to figure out a different way to do this. And that's probably, I think, when we're going to find out that this kind of planning and thinking started in earnest. Whenever it was, we know it was one to two years ago. But there's a precipitant event that I think made them decide to do it now. And that is normalization with Saudi. It's one thing for there to be the Abraham Accords between the UAE and Israel and Bahrain and Israel, even for countries like Morocco or maybe Sudan before their civil war to to join in. But Saudi Arabia is the custodian of the two holiest sites in the Islamic faith. Saudi Arabia is the most powerful country in the region. If Saudi Arabia were to normalize with Israel, it could kind of break the glass ceiling and create a cascade effect where other countries, maybe even massive Muslim majority countries like Indonesia or Malaysia, let alone countries in the Middle East and North Africa, could follow suit. Countries that have had relations, quiet relations with Israel for a long time could do more. I think that Saudi Arabia saw that in the wake of the Abraham Accords, forget business, but just the anti-missile technology that Israel has provided to the UAE in the short time since that normalization happened, significantly enhanced the United Arab Emirates' ability to defend itself against a rocket attack against its airport, which Shia militias, proxies of Iran did, that that would be extremely useful for Saudi Arabia to counter Houthi missiles from Yemen. Houthis are another Shia, different type of Shia, but another Iranian proxy group. They're they're less close to Iran, less beholden to Iran, but Iran is happy to work with them. That it would have been really useful when Iran and its proxies flew drones and rockets and targeted the Abqaiq oil facility in Saudi Arabia a while back. And so if you're Iran, you can understand that whether it's the main reason or, the, or, 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 or a secondary reason, these countries getting together and cooperating to defend against the tools that you have in your toolkit to threaten them, that's, that's not in your interest. And then if you're Hamas in particular, Saudi Arabia is not doing this without asking for something for the Palestinians. 
But the problem is that Hamas doesn't want peace dividends for the Palestinians. Hamas wants Israel destroyed. For Hamas, anybody making peace with Israel is part of the problem. For Hamas, if part of the dividend that the Saudis are asking for in return for normalizing with Israel is more things to the Palestinian Authority and movement towards a two-state solution, that is anathema to Hamas. And Hamas realized that if there was normalization, the Palestinian groups who would be left on the sideline would be the hardline militant Islamists like it, Hamas, and it would empower the moderates who for all of their poor governance and corruption would be empowered to pursue a improvement of Palestinian lives and a two-state solution. And that was something that neither Hamas nor Hezbollah and Iran could tolerate. The other thing that's been playing out very publicly is the internal strife in Israel over a number of things. Some of them include Prime Minister Netanyahu's changing of certain rules regarding the Supreme Court and the Constitution. It's really unsettling to a lot of Israelis, and there have been a lot of protests. Now, understanding that in some groups, everything is might makes right, and that they perceive anything that they imagine in, based on their world is, is some sort of weakness that they take advantage of that. Do you think this was something that they observed and thought was helpful to them? Without question. I'll just correct that. It's a minor correction, but it's important if we're for ABA here. Israel does not have a constitution, but uh, it's 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 amendments to the basic law and to how judges are selected and and very fundamental issues about the role of the, of the judiciary within the Israeli democratic system. This created significant, visceral political and social cleavages within Israel. Hassan Nasrallah, the secretary general, the leader of Hezbollah, has been saying for years now that Israel is weaker than a spider's web. He believes that. And then these events started happening in Israel that, from his perspective, as he described it very publicly many times, was proving him right. He was being vindicated. And if you are a theological fundamentalist organization that you believe that you are right and that you are doing what God wants, and then kind of your vision of the world is being vindicated, I do think that, A, tactically, they felt that Israel was weak and distracted. And by the way, I think they were proven right. And B, you believe that your theological vision is proving true. There are events that are happening in the real world that are proving your theological, political predictions true. And I do think that that factored in to the decision to do something because they saw Israel as being weak. And I, I think a lot of people would say that uh, Vladimir Putin's decision to attack Ukraine might have been based on some of the internal strife in the United States. So. We've seen that in other contexts as well. Let me ask you this, a, a prediction, because you've been an observer of this conflict for so incredibly long. Right now, do you have any thoughts on how this might end? Yeah, if I knew that, I'd be a wealthy man and, and a much less scared man as well, because this could this could get worse. I think we need to understand that the Israelis are united and serious about doing what has to be done to end the Hamas political and militant project in Gaza. And frankly, I don't know of any country, democratic or otherwise, that would suffer the kind of barbaric attack in the kind of numbers. And if you extrapolate those by proportion to the country, talking, I don't know, somewhere around 40,000 people in the United States, if it was in, in a similar attack by proportion. I'm understanding that there are reports now that the reports of 150 hostages may be low and that may be closer to 200. We're talking about three-year-old kids being kidnapped. 
I just, I think it's so important for people to understand. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate, and I, I lose sleep and am nauseous about the Palestinians in Gaza who are being killed and are dying because of the attack and the war that Hamas started. But I think we need to understand that what the goals are for Israel. They cannot tolerate that kind of a threat on their border anymore. Does Hezbollah or do other groups get involved if it gets close to Hamas seeming to be really cut down to size, cut, cut off at the knees? If things turn bad for the Israelis when they go in on the ground, and it will be a brutal war on the ground, uh, Hamas has spent many years and a tremendous amount of money that was supposed to go to civilians building domestic tunnels within Gaza, crisscrossing Gaza to be able to move military personnel without being seen from above and being able to pop up and ambush people as they come in. You have to assume they have ambush spots and IEDs and all kinds of things set up in an effort to inflict as many casualties as possible on the Israeli military and kidnap as many wounded soldiers through the tunnels as possible. In the event that things go well for Hamas, and it seems that they might be recovering. Does Hezbollah then get in so as not to be left out? They think that this really is the demise of the Jewish state. I think the United States and others have made it very, very clear they're not going to allow it to get to that point. Two aircraft carrier groups in the region sends a pretty damn strong message. And I understand that there are Marines and others being sent not to directly fight, but to support the Israeli uh, Israelis at this time. But it could get could get bad, and it's not just Iranian militants. It's the Iranian foreign minister who said that, you know, uh, if Israel doesn't stop battling Hamas, and if uh, American and others get involved, we're we're going to resume targeting U.S. interests in the region. I do see a situation in which it could escalate and get out of control. I am optimistic in the moment that it won't. But I come back to what I said to you earlier: we have to throw all of our preconceptions out the window. And understand that sometimes our adversaries make calculated decisions that are different than ours, and they're not necessarily irrational. I think we typically misunderstand the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans, Hamas's and Hezbollah's, because we assume they're going to think and calculate like us. They calculate risk and benefit differently than we do. We're more risk averse, and we tend not to do things unless there's going to be more benefit. They tend to be willing to assume risk, sometimes much more risk, even for far less benefit than what we would act for. And if that's the case, we need to stop thinking about this when we assess what they might do in terms of what we might do and start thinking about what they might do if we were actually in their shoes. And I don't think we do that very well. I anticipate that this is not going to be a six-day war, but a six-month campaign. I anticipate that it's going to have ups and downs in terms of what Hezbollah is doing from the north. They're going to do a lot more of what they've done over the past few days, small things, slightly larger things, trying to find ways to stick their finger in Israel's eye without forcing Israel to go in hard and strong at a minimum to draw some Israeli forces to the north and away from the south. At the end of this, though, I anticipate that there will be a rump Hamas left. It will have been the recipient of significant territorial defeat. But the same way ISIS still exists after we inflicted territorial defeat on the Islamic State, Hamas will still exist in Gaza, certainly the West Bank and elsewhere. I anticipate there'll be very significant international diplomatic pressure on Hamas in terms of the hostages, because there are people from about 20-something countries uh, that were killed and taken hostage. 
two of the youngest girls taken hostage, I think around three years old, are our German citizens, just for example. I think there'll be tremendous international pressure on countries that are hosting Hamas leaders that are supporting this barbarism in places like Qatar and Turkey and Lebanon. But I'm too smart to tell you that I know how this is going to end because I don't. With that, Matt, I want to thank you for your work. And I want to thank you for coming in to help us understand better the history of Hamas. I really appreciate the opportunity. Our pleasure. Our guest tonight has been Dr. Matt Levitt from our Wexler Fellow at the Washington Institute and director of its Jeanette and Eli Reinhardt Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. And thank you for listening to National Security Law today. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, I'm going to call it Twitter, threads, as well as other platforms under the handle at ABA NATSEC. If you want to give us some feedback, please do. You can also reach us by email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. Share this episode with a friend and have an intelligent conversation about national security, the laws that govern us, and ongoing events in the Middle East. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salido is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thank you for listening. And before you go, mark your calendars for the 33rd Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law, CLE Conference, this November 16th through 17th held at the Renaissance Washington, D.C. Downtown Hotel. Don't miss out on engaging presentations, thought-provoking panels, and unparalleled networking opportunities. Registration link and event details can be found in the episode description. We look forward to seeing you there. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.